The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 8. Let me, let me ask God for help with this uh, challenging chapter 8. Our Father, grant to us clarity of understanding, brevity of expression, and humility of heart. Help us do justice to the text. Nothing added, nothing twisted. In Jesus' name, help us. Amen. Today's text, Daniel 8, will show, and my aim is to show, not only that God is sovereign over nations, but He's not abandoned us in our sin. The first six chapters of the 12 chapters in Daniel are about the sovereignty of God, and we're going to discover that the second six chapters of those 12 chapters are also about God's sovereignty. So the whole thing is about God's sovereignty. Now I invite you just now to recall the lyrics of the song we sang just a few minutes ago. God our fortress and our strength, unshaken by the schemes of man. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. He's faithful through it all. And we'll see the realities of that, those lyrics, right here in chapter 8. The whole Bible is God's revelation about Himself. And in preaching the whole counsel of God, we can't avoid difficult passages that are distributed throughout the Bible. Today, we'll see that the book of Daniel contains some strange numbers and phrases. In the Bible, not everything is equally clear or equally important. The 8th chapter of Daniel is a challenging text, but it's nevertheless part of God's divine revelation, as confirmed in part by its uncanny prediction of sweeping empires through centuries of history, nailing certain dates, particular dates. And so it's unspeakably precious. All Scripture is profitable. What I'm about to unpack from chapter 8 might frustrate some of you and disappoint others and bewilder many, but hopefully it will encourage the faithful. You may ask, what's the connection between the historical accounts in those first six chapters? You'll remember the account of Daniel and his friends refusing the king's food. You'll remember interpreting a dream that the king hasn't even told him what he dreamt. You'll remember them in the fiery furnace. You'll remember the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. You'll remember the lion's den. All those historical events. What's the connection between all those? And now these chapters at the end of the book, all this strange apocalyptic language and visions and stuff. Why is the first half of the book historical? And the last half of the book, <laughs> I just thought of this, hysterical. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's not in my notes right here. That's... Well, here's the answer why the first half is historical, I think. It gives us Daniel's 
unique and incredible credentials so that when we get to the visions in the last half of the book, we don't say, well, these, these are just some weird hallucinogenic dreams of some wacko from off the street somewhere. Rather, this is a guy who has interpreted dreams nobody knew existed except the king, and he interpreted them to the king in front of the whole kingdom. So this guy has some credentials. He's got some chops when it comes to visions. So we might want to pay attention when he tells us he himself has had a vision. And he himself takes these visions very seriously. For in chapter 7, last week, at the very end, verse 28, he says, quote, As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. He knows this is not just some fluke of a dream. I've had a lot of fluky dreams, weirdo dreams. He's saying, not this one. Or at the end of the chapter we're going to look at here, chapter 8, in the 27th verse, he says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. He senses that these prophetic visions are serious. He doesn't simply find them curious or strange or weird, but terrifying. He's appalled, and I suspect that we are meant to be also. Daniel seeks to understand, and so do we. But if Daniel did not understand, we... I think, should be very humble about making any claims that we understand for sure. Before we jump into chapter 8, it might be helpful to note that chapter 7 is a panorama of four kingdoms. One, two, three, four. And chapter 8 is a zoom-in, a close-up of two of those four empires. We should also keep in mind that prophecy in the Bible can be future for the one who's writing it down. Daniel is writing about some things that haven't happened yet that are going to happen for him. But we're past them. We can look back on them, and we can see that they've already happened. Obviously, prophecy is most easily understood when it's prophesying events that have already taken place. We, as Christians, we can identify with this in that we can look at some of the prophecies about Jesus and His birth and His life and His death and His resurrection, and we look back on them and say, sure, makes, makes sense. But for the people in those days when those prophecies were being issued, they would think, what is this? So we have the advantage of some history that's already under our belts. This prophetic vision, while being future for Daniel and his contemporaries, is past history for us. And though we may not understand everything, we can understand some things. For example, Daniel didn't know much at all about the Seleucid kingdom and the Seleucid kings and all that. So he didn't know about a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes because that guy was still in the future. But we know about him. We can go to the museums and and look at things like the coins that he issued, stamped with his image on them. The book of Daniel was written about five and a half centuries before Jesus, and yet it describes events that take place hundreds of years later. 
Fulfilled predictions are a testimony to the veracity of the Bible, evidence that the Bible is authoritative. So now to unpack the chapter. In unpacking this chapter, I'd like to start with the last verse. So if you would turn to the last verse, verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel says he did not understand. Now Daniel is now perhaps approximately 80 years old, and he knows from Jeremiah that the exile is going to be 70 years. So if the exile, he's been in exile since he was a lad, and if the exile is supposed to be 70 years, and I'm, I'm getting up around 80, we must be getting to the near, near the end of our exile. And yet, this prophetic vision comes that says, there's going to be kingdoms more of terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things. Including the desecration of holy things. Problems for the Jews are going to be extended. No wonder Daniel is appalled and he freely admits he doesn't get it. I thought we were just about at the end of this suffering. Bummer. Now, one more little tip for us. In trying to understand the characters in Daniel's vision, there's rams and goats, and we've seen bears and leopards and various creatures. One way to understand these characters and the character of those characters is to pay attention to the verbs. What do they do? What do these characters do? We're going to see words like charging, did as he pleased, struck, broke, cast him to the ground, trampled on him, caused fearful destruction, destroy, make deceit prosper, and so on. Now the same principle, observing verbs, applies to you and me. How do people know what we're like? Well, they watch how we behave. Talk's cheap. People are watching our actions. Now, over the past two Sundays, Pastor Stephen unpacked Daniel's first vision, which appeared in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign, and it's now two years later. Sometimes God seems to delay before shedding light on something we'd like to know more about right now. His timing is not ours. No doubt virtually everyone in this room has something we'd like God to explain now. Could you give us some clarity now? What's your plan? And he waits. Here he waited two years, gave one vision, one year. Two years later, he gives a vision that clarifies a portion of it. His timing is not our timing. Now, verse 1. Daniel 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that, which appeared to me at the first, in the last chapter. Daniel has already, by the way, seen the fulfillment of the first part of his first vision. You know, there are these four kingdoms, and one kingdom is going to fall and be replaced by another. He's already seen that in his lifetime. The Babylonians have been conquered by the Medo-Persians. That's already in the bank. Verse 2, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at Ulai Canal. 
I raised my eyes and saw, there's a lot of seeing here. I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. I think we're supposed to try to picture this. And behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, and it had two horns. In the Bible, horn usually or often refers to strength, fierceness. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. This phrase, became great, or some version of it, is going to show up in this chapter five times. The word implies a self-magnified arrogance, becoming a law unto oneself and just trampling others. The animals in these visions, by the way, represent kings. These horns are kings. And they're not only nasty, but they think of themselves as independent, not dependent. I'll make the rules around here is the attitude that they have. So who or what is this ram with these two horns, and what are the differentiated horns? Well, the ram with the two horns represents the two kings of Media and Persia. How do we know that the two horns, the ram with the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia? What would give me the confidence to say that? Because verse 20 tells us that. If you flip over to verse 20... As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Straightforward. There it is. Now here's a principle of Bible interpretation. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So there's going to be some stuff in chapter 8 here we might wonder about and speculate on. Not this. It's plain, and it's main. Now, we'll notice in verse 4, this covers a lot of time and a lot of geography. Ram charging westward and northward and southward. It's a lot of territory over there. It takes time for armies to charge around like that. And we're not given the details. We're not given all the battles and, and who the generals were and all that kind of stuff. We're not given the details because we don't need them. There are details we don't need. Now, verse 5, another animal enters the vision. As I was considering, behold, a male goat. Now, this is the king of Greece. This male goat is the king of Greece. And you may ask, well, Pastor Sam, how do you know this is the king of Greece? Because verse 21 tells us who it is. If you go to verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece. That's plain. Don't have to guess who the goat is. And Greece, interestingly, I was so intrigued by some of the stuff I discovered as I was reading about this. Greece, as you know, is surrounded by the Aegean Sea. And the root word of Aegean is goat. And Alexander the Great established a capital called Agi, which is the word goat. Isn't that interesting? So in Daniel's vision here, the Persian Empire is a ram with two horns, and the Greek Empire is a goat. Also interesting, 
I don't want to make too much of this, but I was tickled to observe this. I started poking around online, looking at pictures. And I was trying to learn a little bit about these empires a little bit and discovered that the, uh, the, the empire of the Persians was emblazoned. They have a, a breastplate of the armor that had a lot of stuff on it, including, guess what? A ram. Two prominent horns on it. And I was looking at some coins in the British Museum, pictures of coins of a guy we're going to get to here in a few minutes, and Alexander the Great. And the coins that were stamped by Alexander the Great with his image on them, his image has a goat horn on his head. Daniel didn't know that was going to happen. There it is. Ram and a goat doing battle. Now when Alexander conquered the known world from the, with this Greek empire, he took his language with him, which was Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. By spreading his empire, he was spreading his language, and by spreading his language, he's preparing the way for Jesus and the New Testament. The book of Daniel is about Jesus, though he's not mentioned by name. Continuing in verse 5 about the male goat. Male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, which I think refers to the ease with which his armies moved and the speed with which they progressed. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful, in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became, here it is again, exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander, conquering the known world, dies at the age of 32. No army conquered him. He just died. I mean, he was sick. He got drunk, and he got sick, and he died. And instead of it, the horn, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So to recap, we've had a ram with two horns, and he was trampled by a goat with one horn, and that horn was broken, and up came four horns, and now, verse 9, out of one of them, out of one of the four horns, came a little horn, which grew, here it is again, exceedingly great, toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. I think Daniel means towards his homeland, Israel. Now, there was a little horn in Pastor Stephen's chapter 7. And that little horn arises in chapter 7 from the fourth of the four kingdoms. Here, this little horn arises from the third empire, and therefore, I infer, it's not the Antichrist. Because there's another kingdom yet to come. Now, if he's not the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, who is he? Who is this horn? Well, history records that when Alexander the Great 
died, his empire was taken over by four generals, four horns, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And out of one of them, Seleucus, grew the little horn which grew great, namely Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's nothing beyond this guy's defiance. He openly defies Jehovah, who in our text we'll see is called the Prince of the Host, a reference to God. For example, this Antiochus Epiphanes minted a coin with his image stamped on it, and the words in Greek, Theos Epiphanes, God made manifest. If you want to know what God looks like, look at me. That's what he's saying in the coinage of his realm. Incredible. He considered himself a manifestation of Zeus. Such arrogance. It's blasphemy. This Antiochus, so there's these four horns. Out of one of them rises up this guy. He was a character. He he slaughters approximately 100,000 Jews, 40,000 of them in three days. He takes about 40,000 of them into captivity and makes slaves of them. Verse 10, it, that's referring to the horn of this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, it grew great. There it is again, grew great. Even, and that greatness again is this arrogance this self-magnified cockiness. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, who is this host and, and the stars? What, what do they represent? Do we have any clues? Yes, we do. In verse 24, jump down to verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall seed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. That's who he destroys. That's who he throws down. The saints, believers. Verse 11. It, this horn, became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Now, the prince of the host represents God, and when it, it's saying that he became as great as him. It doesn't mean he became equal with him. It says it, it's meaning that he became a rival. He's competing. And here now is the abomination that Antiochus brought upon Israel. Quote in verse 11, And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, taken away from the prince, taken away from Jobah. Sacrifices were to him, and Antiochus took that away. He ended the morning and evening sacrifices. He forbid them. And instead, he brings in to the temple an unclean pig and sacrifices it to Zeus. As though to say, you Jews, here's what I think about your Jehovah. Secondly, in verse 11, and the place of his sanctuary, the prince's sanctuary, was overthrown. Verse 12, And a host will be given over to it, this horn, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it, the little horn, Antiochus, will throw truth to the ground. We can see it stated another way in verse 25. Um, 
verse 25, he will make deceit prosper. Throw truth to the ground, make deceit prosper. Antiochus, by the way, and his soldiers shredded and burned the Torah, the scriptures that Moses had written. Here in verse 13 now, we see a major turning point. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? So first notice that Daniel's vision here is not fully comprehensible even to angels. Angels know quite a lot of things, and they don't know quite a lot of things. As the Bible says, they long to look into these things. And notice that the angel doesn't ask, now why is this happening? Or who's the goat? But he asks, how long? How long? That's a question that's asked by sufferers. Have you ever felt what the psalmist felt? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? All the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The angel is asking how long, but the answer comes not to the angel, but to Daniel. Verse 14. And he said to me, Daniel. Now, though the temple was not completely obliterated and leveled, It was emptied of its valuables, it was emptied of its worshipers, and it was defiled by the unclean sacrifice to Zeus. It was made unclean, it was made unfit. So Antiochus is not only attacking God's people and trying to take territory, he's attacking God himself. Verse 14, he said to me, answering the question, how long? For 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, what are the 2,300 evenings and mornings? Is that 2,300 days? Is it uh, less than that because it would be 1,150 mornings plus 1,150 evenings totals 2,300, which would be less, would be half of 2,300 days? Or or what is it? And I have found um, three viable interpretations of this number, and I want to warn us all about interpreting prophecy by drawing attention to a fourth interpretation that has already been disproven, namely this. In the 1800s, a guy named William Miller interpreted each day to be a year. So 2,300 days is 2,300 years. And he predicted, therefore, that Jesus would return sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. As a result of his prediction. Many people quit their jobs. Some jumped from trees and rooftops expecting to be raptured, but they were only ruptured. It became known as, quote, the great disappointment. Collateral damage to people's faith was horrific. So let us beware of how we interpret the Bible. So there are three viable interpretations, and without taking time here to belabor the different options, let me just say here in shorthand 
that some calculations show the timing of the 2300 mornings and evenings to culminate, to come to an end at 164 BC, which is the year when the temple is restored and rededicated. Antiochus makes a mess of it, and at the end of this number, it's restored. This event in 164 BC is marked by something most of us recognize in this room, something that is commemorated on a U.S. postage stamp, Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. Daniel is forecasting the restoration of the temple before it's destroyed and before it's rebuilt. Jesus warns us that the persecution Israel suffered under Antiochus is going to be repeated at the end of time and on a very large scale. Matthew 24, 15. So when you, this is Jesus talking. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and several verses later he says, and this is the good news, and this is part of what I want us to get in this chapter this morning, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There's a future coming that will be terrible, and it has its limit, and God will cut it off. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision... I sought to understand it. Uh Uh-huh, we too. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So angels can appear human. 16. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, the end of what? The end of the empire? The end of the abomination of the temple? The end of all things? The end? When everybody's finally judged, what end? Well, we're told in verse 19. So let's keep reading. Verse 18. When he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of what? Of the indignation. That is, the desecration of the temple. Slaughtering pigs and so forth in there. Burning scriptures. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Take hope, Christians. God appoints times. They're appointed And here comes now in verse 20 the interpretation of the ram and the goat that we mentioned earlier, right from the horse's mouth, as it were. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Enter now Antiochus Epiphanes, verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, notice again, God has appointed times and limits. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great. 
but not by his own power. And he shall, every kingdom, every king, every governor, every dog catcher ministers in the power that God supplies to him. He gives to all life and breath and everything else. And if he withdraws that power, <laughs> there's no intrinsic power remaining. 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, a reference to God. And here in the middle of verse 25, we see another major turning point in this chapter. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. It's not going to be some other army that takes him down. God, who has been at work behind the scenes, at last steps forward. And Antiochus will not merely be defeated or unseated, but broken, reflecting God's zeal for his name, his righteousness, his people. Antiochus, who, by the way, founded the city of Antioch, which will come up in the New Testament, is defeated by the Maccabees and he dies in this year of 164 of an illness, broken, but by no human hand. Let me read from Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. How many of you got up this morning, show of hands here, thinking of Antiochus Epiphanes? How many of you have given him a thought in the year 2022? He's become as nothing to us. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Seal it up doesn't mean hide it or conceal it. It means preserve it for future reference. Now, all of this history may prompt many to wonder, why does God allow evil? Why does he allow evil kingdoms that operate for centuries and are very harsh on God's chosen people? Here's a few reasons. He does it to demonstrate his inscrutable wisdom, for he works all things together according to his own counsel, for the good of those who love him, and he doesn't ask our permission. Second reason, he does it to humble the saints. We don't have everything all figured out. We're not wise enough to have it all figured out. Third reason, he does it to punish wicked kingdoms. God has many ways to punish a wicked kingdom, but one of the ways he can do it is punish them with another wicked kingdom. Fourth reason, 
God allows evil kingdoms, is to establish the gospel. It will be a wicked kingdom that will crucify Jesus for your sins so that you can be saved. So we can have this table. Fifth reason, to ultimately honor his son who conquers every kingdom. What lies at the heart of Daniel 8 is the certainty that God will overrule. I want to just go back over this chapter just briefly and notice some things called divine passives. Divine passives. Verse 1, it says, a vision appeared. It didn't just appear. God sent it. God sent this vision. And we could ask ourselves, what kind of a God would give a vision like this that predicts so much difficulty? Well, one answer would be he's a God who doesn't want his faithful to be downhearted when the difficulty arrives. Hang in there. It's coming, and it has a limit. I'm going to cut it off. Verse 8, a great horn was broken. God broke it. Verse 12, a host was given over. No, God gave them over. Verse 25, broken not by human hands. Well, it's God who breaks him. God is at work even when evil befalls his people. He ordains the reign of wicked kings, and he breaks them. And when evil befalls God's people, and Jesus and Paul and John forewarn us about a coming period of severe persecution, when this evil befalls God's people, we have assurance that our sovereign God will limit the days of the persecution and bring unimaginable good through it, by it. It is the adversity that produces for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So the function of this chapter is to bring us comfort. The sovereign realm of God is vastly different from the realms of all earthly kingdoms, past, present, and future. Earthly kingdoms are limited and will eventually decline. In contrast, God's kingdom is everlasting It's universal, and it's personal. He knows each of his subjects. He reigns over all the affairs of time and eternity. So we need not be panicky by developments among human authorities. They're temporary. Let me give you this interpretation from John Calvin. He says, If nothing had been predicted, so these are predictive visions, that Daniel's having. If nothing had been predicted, the pious, that is, the people of God, would have glided gently downward to despair in consequence of their heavy afflictions. And if this had not been predicted, they would have thought themselves deceived concerning the splendid promises concerning their return from captivity. But when they perceived everything occurring according as they had been opportunely forewarned, this became no slight solace in the midst of their woes. The predictions are meant for their comfort. Knowing God's grace, we know enough. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Tis grace that brought us safe thus far.
My heart is saying amen. He is sovereign over the nations and he has not abandoned us, even in our sin. Because he's not abandoned his sovereign plan, revealed ahead of time. Now, Daniel's response to this vision and its significance is that it puts him in bed, sick, overcome, appalled. And as we'll see after Easter, it drives Daniel to pray. Back in chapter 6, we saw Daniel get arrested because he prayed. But we weren't told what he prayed in chapter 6. Doesn't it make you wonder, what does he pray when he gets arrested for praying? Chapter 9 is going to give us what he prays. So three, three sermons on 1 Corinthians 15 and then come back to hear Daniel pray. Now here are some lyrics you're going to sing in just a moment. O Father, you are sovereign in all the affairs of man. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. O Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain. All evil overruling, as none but conqueror could. Your love pursues its purpose and our soul's eternal good. O Father, you are sovereign. We see you dimly now, but soon, before your triumph, earth's every knee shall bow. With this glad hope before us, our faith springs up anew. Our sovereign Lord and Savior, we trust and worship you. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.